0: Friday, February the 21st. Where in the Word have you been today? I am in Psalm 8 today. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth you can um you can actually say psalm or sing psalm 8 uh as a declaration oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you could also like pose it as an interrogative oh lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth god's name is holy and god's name um, is given given to us. I mean, like the the fact that we know God by name, that we can call on God by name, that God has given us the name of his son, Jesus, and that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. The name of Jesus, the fact that we know his name, that changes everything. It changes everything. The promise of God in Scripture that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that promise is still good. Now, you and I don't yet live in that day. I mean, we don't yet live in the day when every knee bows to the name of Jesus. But that day is coming, my friends. There is no other name. And so today, as you consider how majestic is the name of the Lord our God. How majestic is the God whose name we know. I just want you to acknowledge that that changes everything. It changes everything about the challenges and stresses and fears and shortcomings and sins and doubts and death that you and I will face today. It changes everything. And so if you know the name of Jesus, you really know all you need to know to face the day which now lies ahead. And if you do not know the name of Jesus, then, then please, please consider today being the day that your knee bows right here and right now to the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. If you want more information about that and you're saying to yourself, I don't know what she's talking about Text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four 2484 or email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. There would be no greater privilege in my life than to walk you to the place where you could bow the knee today to the Lord and Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. Next up, I've got Matthew Hawkins. He and I are going to talk about um, what's going on among billions of Hindus today. We're also going to talk about uh, the way that Democratic presidential hopefuls are offering different approaches um, to the challenge of talking... Uh, to Christian voters. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So joining me again today is Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at matthewthawkins.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at @mthawk. Welcome back, my friend. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Okay, so here's the surprise conversation that I really want to have with you today and it's about fashion. How do you how do you feel? <laughs> do you feel prepared to talk about fashion today? Probably not.
2: Sure, why not? You you all have okay. to understand. We exchanged emails yesterday and this was not this is the first time I'm hearing this out of Carmen's mouth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course. Of course it is. Don't no, we're I so can talk here's, Let's So out. here's what really strikes me about so we have all of these articles in front of us about the democratic debates and what happened on the stage and what people talked about and you know, whose votes they're trying to get and all that. I have to tell you, in every single one of them, the the pictures is what really pops to me. And so right. I of course see women wearing red and purple and men across the board right. wearing navy blue. Okay, And so no one's wearing brown, which, if you will remember, was Ronald Reagan's signature color. Um, And Uh that's because brown is the color of trust. No one is wearing brown. Isn't that interesting? But why why do women feel compelled to wear this pop of color and have this, you know, notably, as the L.A. Times fashion people say, naked neck? Notice no men have (laughs) naked necks. The men are well, all buttoned all the way up to the top with the cinched-up tie, no neck. The women, mmm, showing some neck. What? What? Just yeah. give me your two cents today on the fashion related to the debate you're asking,
2: stage. You're asking me why women are wearing what they're wearing? <laughs>
0: Thank, thanks,
2: Carmen. <laughs> Appreciate that on a Friday morning. Well, Talking so here's the thing. Size. You've,
0: been, you've well, spent time I, in D.C. Say, like You know that there's power in the dress code. Yeah.
2: Right there. Yeah, there's certainly power in the dress code. Um, And I mean, it's just uh, more accentuated uh, in a presidential debate because, look, I mean, whether you're male or female, obviously you're trying to set yourself apart and stand out from your competitors while still fitting within, you know, when that while not looking like you're trying. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's it's a fine art. Uh, And frankly, when you're on Capitol Hill, you don't actually see much of that although you know you do uh, obviously there's in, in men's wardrobes the power tie right which is typically red but not always and so you're you're looking for a a pop or something to kind of draw your attention uh i'm gonna plead ignorance on the on the show in the neck but i you know obviously uh neckties are not common common wear for uh for ladies and i uh, wouldn't recommend it <laughs>
0: No, see right exactly. Okay, so I'm going to make two observations that you do not have to respond so, to, and then we will move so, on. So, what, is the red jacket the uh, the power the power jacket okay. instead of the power so tie? I will just tell you that um, women wear red so that men will listen to them.
2: Okay, there
0: you. Men will listen to a woman who is wearing red. They, there's a there's a higher likelihood if you're on the stage and you're wearing red, the men in the audience will listen to you. The, uh-huh. the, the the choice of the color purple, which has been you you've you have seen it more and more during this political season than any other season, is a uh-huh. very interesting choice because obviously purple in our political language is is supposed to be right. you know the right. speaking to both sides of the aisle, and so uh-huh. when you see uh, in particular a woman wearing purple, you should say to yourself, hmm, there's a reason she's doing that. the yeah. uh, the open neck thing is a big deal. Now let me just tell you, if anybody is going to be voting based on the shoes. Um, none of these women are being elected. <laughs> these are the worst shoe choices ever, and only one of them is wearing a skirt. So there you go. Everybody's wearing pants there except for one. There's that's this my. Is awesome. uh, this is Carmen's fashion <laughs> commentary.
2: That's awesome. Fashion I love commentary. We should, do
0: that more often. we should. Okay, so let's talk instead now about what I actually teed up for you, which <laughs> is that these Democratic presidential um, hopefuls are taking very different approaches when they're trying to talk uh, to people. Um, who have convictions related to abortion. Talk talk with us about this.
2: Yeah. Um, So obviously at the national level in particular, um, you have a a political party in the Democrat Party that is committed to, uh, they would say, pro-choice. Some of us would observe that a lot of them are pro-abortion and that they uh, help facilitate uh, increased abortions uh, with the likes of Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood is a heavy heavy political donor, uh, to presidential Democrat uh, campaigns. And, uh, it's, it's almost the third rail for a Democrat, uh, at this, at this level to, uh, certainly be pro-choice. And as we saw from Joe Biden, uh, he's backed away from what was called the Biden amendment, which, uh, we don't have to go into the weeds right now, but, uh, for conceptual purposes, it's basically like a scrimmage line, <laughs> uh, between pro-abortion folks and pro-life folks that say, uh, we're not going to force you or force federal dollars to use for tax abortions or, uh, for abortion payments. Um, uh, Biden has, after decades of supporting that scrimmage line, that, um, that, uh, compromise has backed away from that. So you have everybody on stage right now, uh, having, uh, basically taken that tact and, uh, are fully, uh, pro choice. Uh, but, you do have some differences in how they talk about uh, pro-life Democrats within their own party. And so you've seen exchanges uh, or speeches where Sanders has committed that uh, pro-choice is, quote, absolutely essential part of being a Democrat. Um, a Buddha judge told uh, in a reply to a Democrat, the Democrat for life uh, leader, that there was no room for pro-life folks in the party. Uh, but yet you have uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, who is a senator, and she suggested that it's a it's a big tent party still, and uh, pro-choice people are welcome in the party. So you have that little nuance where uh, Senator Klobuchar is trying to separate herself a little bit from her competitors. Uh, Look, I mean, her vote in the Senate is not going to be any different than Bernie Sanders or, or, or Buttigieg uh, or Biden for that matter. And, uh, you know, President Klobuchar's administration is, I would anticipate, uh, health and human services being fully uh, invaded by pro choice and pro abortion folks. So let's, let's uh, be real, real eyed here. But uh, at the same time, look, we need. A pro, we need pro life Democrats to be in the party and stay in the party. the party doesn 't become more pro life by uh, by people leaving the party right um, now this is a matter of conscience for people whether they you know to what extent they participated in a party um, and that they have now disdained for or they feel like the party has left them that 's a common thing in American politics uh, going back you know decades if not longer um, so I think we 're on the cusp here of. Uh, or just kind of made an inflection point for the pro-life movement. Um, We've, uh, under the Trump administration, we've got a lot of wins in the judges arena uh, that could bear fruit in the long run. We've got some temporary regulations from Health and Human Services that are helpful but uh, could be undone by the next president. Um, And this issue is so partisanized right now. Uh, You know, we need to think creatively about how, how, people who are pro-life uh, can begin to reshape the Democrat Party. Uh, that's a long that's a long arc uh, project, but if we really want this nation to be pro-life and we want the governing structures of our nation to be pro-life, you need some Democrats to go along with you and a significant portion.
0: Yeah. I mean, moral revolution doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen quickly, but it right. also doesn't happen if nobody starts. Down the right. path of of leading it, so I appreciate uh, appreciate that viewpoint. All right, uh, Matt, you and I got to take a quick break. When we come back, love to talk with you about what Hindus are doing today, what they're celebrating, and how it gives us a uh, an opportunity to talk about uh, the Christian worldview in the midst of uh, of another very powerful worldview. That's up next here yeah. on Mornings with Carmen. So billions of people around the world today, those who um, operate from a Hindu worldview, are celebrating mm-hmm. uh, one of their major holidays, um, and I don't even know exactly how to pronounce it. It's either <laughs> we're going to butcher it, aren't we? Shivaritri, <laughs> or it's Shaivaritri. I don't know. I'm I don't know. It's terrible, right? Like, there's, there's literally billions of people celebrating this holiday, and they would know how to pronounce the word Christmas, I feel confident. I don't know yeah, how to pronounce yeah. the, you know, the name of their major holiday. Um, let me just tell folks that um, on this major Hindu holiday, which is happening today, what is, um, what is uh, you know, people are going to sing hymns. They're going to sing their praises to yeah. um, Shaiva, Um, they're going to have all kinds of celebrations. It's always celebrated uh, on a moonless night, and it is the celebration of the overcoming of darkness and ignorance. And actually within it, it has these really like salvific themes. I feel like it's a really Uh good opportunity for Christians to not only become students of our neighbors, but also find ways to have conversations about, you know, people are looking for a salvific narrative, and we actually have one that's true.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I think one of the one of the most interesting experiences or one that was uh, dawned on me when I was working in D.C., which is a highly uh, pluralistic kind of environment, is that uh, when you ask someone about their beliefs, their religion, it's kind of a social norm for them to ask you back what you Mm -hmm. believe and why you believe it. Uh, And I think that's an underestimated um, uh, opportunity uh, to get into a gospel conversation with somebody. Um, and so we can rightly be curious about, uh, Hindu festivals and ask our Hindu neighbors if we have the opportunity. I know that's obviously easier said than done in some, uh, and you know, it's easier done in a metro, uh, kind of area than it is maybe a rural area where, uh, Hinduism, you don't really see it. Um, but we ought to have this kind of open-handed, uh, interaction with our neighbors to be like, why do you believe that? Why do you, uh, why do you do that? Uh, when when we talk about uh, other world religions and uh, kind of interaction with them as far as uh, Christians go, I, I keep coming back to um, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what I think is brilliant about this is that, loving God and loving our neighbor, probably in God's providence, will never conflict. And so I think we can be faithful to God and faithful to our belief in Jesus Christ while still respecting and loving our neighbors who are of different faiths.
0: Okay, so if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, um, I don't even know how I might find a person of the Hindu faith near where I live. Um, uh, so here's some, some opportunities for you. All you have to do in your search engine is type in words like Hindu temple near me, or mm-hmm. Hindu restaurant near me, or Hindu yeah. cultural center near me. Um, so you do have to become a student of your own community, and then you have to you then you have to go. And so when we think about the Great Commission, um, there you know the leadoff here is that we would go. And so don't wait for a person of another faith to approach you you be the person who is curious and approach them. This is um, a big holiday for them, a big celebration day. So what does it look like um, for us to intentionally go today to a restaurant that we may not otherwise uh, ordinarily go to because we know that there will be people there celebrating? It gives us the opportunity to be curious. It gives us the opportunity to develop a relationship Across what in our culture is um, is a pretty thick dividing line on many occasions, um, and so I just I really want people to be sensitive to this. Matt, you're so good at having conversations across um, a, across the faith aisle in terms of these things, but lots of folks, lots of Christians, are not having spiritual conversations with their non Christian yeah. neighbors.
2: Well, it's ter- it's it's nerve wracking. It's terrifying. We we feel like we want to have all the answers and uh i think we're 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 hesitant because we we don't uh or we we're not we're not going to have the right words at the right time. um and i think that's the best reason to press forward. i think there's something really valuable in christian witness called humility. um and i think if you can have candid conversations about faith, uh it be honest if you're asked a question that you don't know the answer to, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You're a believer. Cool. You can go to your pastor. You can go, you know, to a, a Christian institution after the fact. And say, so, you know, uh, if you, someone asks you a question, you're like, you know what? That's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that.
1: And yeah, so or let's go find it having together.
2: Interac- yeah, let's go find it together. Um, having interactions with people of other faiths, I have found, has made my faith uh, stronger uh, and I think we need not fear it, um, but we have to get over that fear of uh, humility. Uh, and I think yeah, that's a way that we, uh, to use scriptural language, adorn the gospel that that is, is attractive uh, to nonbelievers. All
0: right, so let me just give folks a a, a one stop shop here in terms of answering questions related to Hinduism. Um, our our partners over at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries have great resources. Go to rzim.org. dot Um, type in the word Hindu or the word Hinduism. All kinds of great resources are going to pop up uh, and you can be more fully equipped for the conversations of this day. Matt Hawkins, uh, as always, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the surprise and delight of the initial part of this conversation. (laughs) Uh, I look forward, as always, to talking with you again.
2: Likewise, uh, happy, to, happy to do it. We actually counseled uh, young, young staffers and interns in D.C. on uh, appropriate attire for the job. So and it's a topic we've actually talked about uh, in, in the past years.
0: I love it, man. I love it. Thanks so much. We'll talk with you soon. Thanks, Carmen. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back. All right, it's Friday, so we're going to do a quick survey of the Weekend Worldview Reader with Dan DeWitt from the Center for Biblical Apologetics and Public Christianity at Cedarville University. You can check it out at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. Okay, so I I recognize that not everybody can listen to the live show every day, Um, and that's why we have a podcast. So everything that we offer here— um, during these two hours is repurposed um, and into a podcast. And you can get it at MyFaithRadio.com. You go to either the Mornings with Carmen page, or you just go to the podcast page, and you can download and or share um, any of our podcasts from any of the days uh, that we broadcast, so Monday to Friday, a couple of hours. Uh, they're divided up. Paul Perot divides them up into two different hours, so you can you know grab an hour at a time. Maybe this week on Tuesday in the first hour, maybe you missed Melissa Oden. Um, she's an abortion survivor. She has testified before Congress. She's written an excellent book. Uh, it's a daughter's memoir. It's called You Carried Me. Maybe you missed that conversation. Really inspiring. Or maybe during the second hour on Tuesday, you missed my conversation with Lori Ferguson-Wilbert, We talked about her book, Handle With Care. It's really seeking to redeem touch and the way, uh, by using the way that Jesus positively, mercifully, um, in a a Holy Spirit, touched people versus the way that many people experience touch today. So we're talking about redeeming touch with her. Maybe on Wednesday, you missed my conversation with Asherita Chuchu about, um, uh, about uncovering the love of Jesus during the season of Lent. Lent's actually gonna start on Wednesday. So what's your Lenten plan? Um, Good opportunity there to uh, listen to that conversation. Or yesterday, maybe you missed Carl Nelson from Transform Minnesota in the first hour. Maybe you missed Heath Adamson um, in the second hour yesterday with the Sacred Chase. If you are, you want to not just be proximate to God, you actually want to have an intimate relationship and fellowship with Him, that's what that whole book is about. So you can go and grab those podcasts at MyFaithRadio.com. Download them, uh, grab the URL, and share it with somebody else via an email or a text message. Great way, great way for you to be an ambassador of this ministry. We'll be right back.
1: Years ago, I met a high school boy who'd kept a secret about an inappropriate relationship with an older woman. The personal shame and pressure of keeping that secret drove him to give up everything he loved and to hurt his closest relationships. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When the boy's secret was finally exposed, his parents couldn't believe he didn't confide in them sooner. He said, you never ask. No matter what inappropriate behaviors your teen engages in, you can connect with your kids by asking insightful questions. Then wait for them to answer. Don't try to fill in the awkward silence with more words. You'll be surprised how much you learn about your teen because you ask and because you listen. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
0: Welcome back. We are joined again today by Dan DeWitt, Director of the Center for Biblical Apologetics and Public Christianity, Associate Professor of Applied Theology and Apologetics at Cedarville University. Dan, welcome
1: back. Thanks, Carmen. Good to be back with you.
0: So, um... I love to talk with you uh, because you post this thing that we call the Weekend Worldview Reader each week at Theolatte.com, and we want to direct people there today. Um, but as I'm reading your title, that you're the director of the Center for Biblical Apologetics and that you are a professor in the area of apologetics, maybe it's time for us to define that term for people. Um, what, what is apologetics and why is it necessary?
1: You know, it's. I do think it's important to, since we use the term so much, to make sure people know what we're talking about. And I, I, I sometimes get asked, as I think a number of apologists, people who do apologetics, are asked, um, does it mean saying you're sorry? So one time I received an email from someone, and we had promoted our apologetics conference, and she emailed me and she said, why are Christians always apologizing. You don't hear about Muslim apology conferences or Hindu apology conferences. And so I was able to email her back and say, actually, the word apologetics doesn't mean to say you're sorry. It means to give a well-reasoned defense. It essentially means to give an answer, and it's based on a word that's found in the Bible. The Apostle Peter says, always be ready to give an apologia, an answer, to anyone who asks a reason, for the hope that's within you. So when someone asks, why do you believe what you believe? Whatever comes out of your mouth as a Christian is apologetics.
0: So I feel like you literally just had one of these uh, apologetics conferences on on your campus. Maybe it was about um, something about sharing the gospel in a secular age. Am I remembering mm-hmm. that correctly?
1: That's right. It was actually yesterday. So the— Oh, wow, yeah, recent. It was Tuesday. It was Tuesday. And so— um, Yeah, we had Greg Kokel, who's a well-known author and someone who defends the Christian faith, and we talked about tactics for sharing the faith in an age where people don't have the same vocabulary we do. So what's it look like to talk about Jesus in a secular age?
0: All right, and then you probably shared something. What did you
1: talk about? You know, I gave a talk at the very beginning of the day. Since I'm the program coordinator, I got to pick the first spot and pick my topic, so my topic was C.S. Lewis on making sense of the human experience.
0: So give us a little uh, a little window into that. And I bet this is included in our weekend wo- worldview reader, which we can get at Theolatte.com. Am I right?
1: It is. It is. I have a Great. link to the manuscript from my talk. So in a nutshell, um, C.S. Lewis as a teenager felt like religion was limited in its ability to make sense of things. And he had a tutor, um, William Kirkpatrick. Who was an atheist and C.S. Lewis, as he learned kind of logic and reason, was um, drawn towards atheism. And for a a large part of his young life, he found atheism to be satisfactory in making sense of things. But after World War I, as he was a newly minted professor at Oxford University, he began doubting, you know, as Tim Keller says, he began doubting his doubts. And he came to see that it was actually the Christian worldview that was able to shed light on what it means to be human. And perhaps to summarize the whole talk in a quote from Lewis, Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else.
0: Wow, Dan, that is so good. Um, could Could I actually just get you to read that quote one more time? Sometimes we don't hear it all the first time.
1: Yeah. So the quote is, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else.
0: I mean, that's a really good worldview, worldview quote. Like if I'm thinking about how I'm seeing everything, I certainly want to be seeing everything through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a that's a really helpful quote to help us do that. So again, friends, if you want to grab that and the rest of the C.S. Lewis on Making Sense of the Human experience. Uh, that Dan DeWitt delivered this week at the Apologetics Conference there at Cedarville University. You can do it by going to Theolatte.com and getting the Weekend Worldview Reader. All right, Dan, there's something else that you have posted this week, and it's actually been a topic of conversation among a lot of people, and that's um, a Richard Dawkins tweet from last Sunday about eugenics and then the conversation that emerges out of that. So tell people who Richard Dawkins is, what eugenics is, and why this is something we should be concerned about in our conversations as Christians today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Richard Dawkins is the world-famous author. He's an accomplished scientist, an outspoken critic of religion. Um, And his book, The God Delusion, which really made him famous, Um, among people outside of his scientific discipline, takes issue with Christian beliefs specifically. And so Richard Dawkins, from time to time, will say things that are helpful to us as Christians, if for no other reason than to say, this is actually what people like Richard Dawkins, what he actually believes. And this weekend on Sunday, I woke up Sunday morning, and at some point after my first cup of coffee, um, saw that he had tweeted this following statement. So, quote, It's one thing to deplore eugenics on ideological, political, and moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Of course it would. It works for cows, horses, pigs, dogs, and roses. Why on earth wouldn't it work for humans? Facts ignore ideology, end quote. Now, here's what eugenics is, and here's a really quick reason why this is scary. Um, Eugenics is the process of trying to improve The human population by choosing certain traits that are considered to be more favorable and more beneficial. The reason it's dangerous is the definition of what it means to improve the human population is always a matter that people can't really seem to agree on, and it usually falls to people who have a certain agenda, and their agenda could be any number of things. It certainly was for Adolf Hitler, who put eugenics into practice. So again, eugenics is trying to improve the human species by controlling who gets to have children and what traits are gonna be passed on.
0: Okay, the piece that you wrote on this that's posted at theolatte.com is just excellent. Um, and so I just wanna be sure that people, uh, people go and get that. It, it, it equips us to be able to have this conversation today in a meaningful way. So I'm talking with Dan DeWitt. The website is Theolatte.com. You want to grab the Weekend Worldview Reader. The piece we're talking about right now is Richard Dawkins' dangerous tweet related to eugenics. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation uh, now with Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University, we're talking about his Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at Theolatte.com. Uh that's like god and coffee together. com. Um all right, Dan. Yeah, right. God and coffee <laughs> together. There you go. Let's um let's talk about um I mean you you write children's books but you're also um obviously a, a a person who um consumes them as well and uses them. And I know that you have of interest right now a a book that's really written for children. Um, entitled Not If But When, Preparing Our Children for Worldly Images. This is really a book about pornography, um, which yeah. is a surprising content subject matter for a children's book. So talk with us about the why and then, you know, share with us the what of not if but when.
1: Well, you know, unfortunately, it's just a reality. Our children are no longer do we have to worry about them going to like a aisle in the grocery store where magazines are and perhaps, you know, glancing, you know, a sealed magazine on the top shelf or something like that. They're now surrounded by pornography just by having kids around with cell phones. And um, I think the average age that a child's ex- first exposed to pornography is something like eight or nine. It's a very young age. And so this is a book that's aimed at, I've not been able to read it yet. It just came out or it's just about to come out. Um, but it's a picture story book that's intended to be read to a child by a loving adult who can prepare them for images that are not helpful for them to see and how they should think about it um, when they are exposed to these kinds of images.
0: And from a Christian worldview, when we talk about the way we see one another and the way we understand other people as image bearers of the living God, um, I I feel like this book, Not If But When, um, it actually is preparing parents on Mm -hmm. how to talk about these things um, by telling a story that becomes then a conversation between a parent and a child. And so the book itself is really sort of like, modeling how to do it by giving the parent, you know, kind of the starting point. Um when we when we talk about how we see one another, when I look around at people, men and women, girls and boys, if I'm if I'm genuinely operating out of um a godly gospel world view, what should I be seeing? Hmm. That's
1: like, such how should a great, I see people? Yeah. That's such a great question. And it's it's one that—how often do we have to just, even as Bible-believing committed Christians, remind ourselves that, you know, the guy who cut me off is created in the image of God, um, is is someone for whom Jesus died, right? So just all of us need to constantly think about that question. So what we should see when we see others is someone who's a human being created in God's image with intrinsic um, worth— and someone who is a a gift um, that we should care for them. As a fellow human being, they're also gonna have their own set of struggles since we live in a fallen world, but they're not a resource to be exploited. And that's really where so many ways of getting this wrong is to see people as a resource used at our disposal in whatever way we want. Whether um, any number of ways we could get that wrong, and so we have to be reminded: no, they are creating God's image, and they are a part of the human race created in God's image, brothers and sisters together, and that's how we should look at people. And I think this book is just reminding us that to be created human is a glorious thing, but there are all kinds of ways that we can misunderstand it and misapply the benefit of being um, embodied souls, right, as as humans.
0: So it feels like there's a connection there between the eugenics conversation and the, uh, you know, and the pornography uh, conversation yeah. and or the abortion conversation and the uh, end of life conversations that maybe some of us are are having with older adults or people who have experienced some kind of physical trauma or are currently living with some sort of horrible diagnosis, and what they see ahead between here and death is so horrible that they would just prefer to bring death as soon as possible. like I feel like each and every one of these conversations really eventually gets us back to the place where we talk about who we really are um mm-hmm. and whether or not we understand ourselves to be created created beings on purpose and for a purpose in the image of a loving and sovereign God?
1: That, you know, I, I wrote in the uh, piece about Richard Dawkins' tweet that we're all going to ask this question, what does it mean to be human and what is a human worth? And the Bible asked that question in Psalm 8, um, who am I that you are mindful of me? What is man that you are mindful of me? But it bookends the question with the same line, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name and all the earth. And that models for us, we'll never know who we are until we first know who God is. You
0: know, I had a recent conversation on the show with um, a guy who wrote a book, uh, Heath Adamson. Um, he wrote a book mm. um, entitled uh, The Sacred Chase. And and mm. in it, he highlights like the story in Mark 5 of the, of the man possessed by so many spirits. And what um, what Heath points out is, the the guy was so lost. He he didn't even know his own name. Hmm. He's so lost. He didn't even know his own name, and uh, and I do feel like today the the identity confusion with which people live uh, it 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 puts them at a place where they're just they're so disconnected from reality that they have literally forgotten who they are. So I think this should be a a, a concern, a prayer concern for all of us as we approach other people. Um, and I I appreciate the sensitivity with which you have these conversations and lift up these issues for us. Because I think that um, you do so in a way that, you know, is not, is not fear-mongering. It's not, um, it's not hateful in any way. It really does acknowledge the, the humanity uh, of the other and the desire for that other person to mm-hmm. to be redeemed and know Christ and live as who they really are. So, Dan, one of the things that you include on the Weekend Worldview Reader um, is, uh, is a video. Um, I appreciate that as well. Tell us about this week's featured video at Theolatte.com.
1: Well, this week I have a video, a very short one, and it's of the Christian apologist, to come back to the term we defined earlier, um, William Lane Craig. And he's talking about another apologist from the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, and the way that Pascal would talk about his faith with other people. And so there's a famous thing called Pascal's Wager, and if you want to know more about it, you can watch the video at at the bottom end of the Weekend Worldview Reader.
0: All right. Pascal's wager. Um, you got a wager for us? Is there going to be a DeWitt wager? Dan DeWitt wager?
1: You coming up with one? It will have something to do with coffee. I'm certain of that. I'm working on the rest. <laughs> the reward. The reward will be coffee for
0: sure. Absolutely. That's right. Dan, we love talking with you. Um, we appreciate uh, appreciate what you're doing at Cedarville. Appreciate your willingness to um, to help us know what we might be uh, reading, should be reading this weekend uh, and so though for the weekend worldview reader and more, things like Mirror Caffeinated, you can go mm-hmm. to Theolatte.com. Dan, thank you so much again for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Carmen. Have a great weekend. You too. See ya. We'll be right back. I'm smelling coffee. Birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning.
0: So I led off this hour with a, a bit of a uh, crazy question to Matthew Hawkins related to what people are wearing on the debate stage <clears throat> and why, why we wear what we wear in the places that we wear what we wear. And so um, I've heard a little feedback from you about that. And so let me let me ask a different question for Christians today. Who are you wearing? Um, it's, it's a question that sometimes you hear on the, you know, like Oscars, like on the red carpet or whatever, you know, a... Uh, uh, a fashion photographer will be like, who are you wearing, right? So the question for the Christian is, who are you wearing today? Have you put on Christ? And is, you know, you're having put on Christ, like the reality of who you are, or, you know, is it just a put on? So every day as Christians, we go out into the world representing someone other than ourselves. But are you doing so like as a costume? Or are you literally clothed with Christ? Who are you wearing right now? Who are you wearing? And are you armored up? Did you put on the full armor of God before you went out into the world today? I mean, did you actually intentionally pray your way through Ephesians chapter 6 and put on the full armor of God? And if not, then you're just out there in the world at risk um, of of the schemes of the evil one. So today is a good day to take off the old nature and put on the new nature, um, to to take off and uh, things like bitterness, and to put on a tender-hearted and forgiving attitude. To to put off or take off a lack of love, and and to put on love in its place. To put off an unforgiving spirit, and to put on forgiveness. To put off judging others, and instead put on you know that allowing God to search our own hearts. Put on humility. Maybe to put off pride. Um. Maybe to put off boasting and conceit, and to put on esteeming others. Actually, if you search the scriptures, there's more than 75 references to putting off and putting on. Putting off things like jealousy and putting on trust. Putting off a critical spirit and putting on kindness. Putting off idle words and putting on a bridled tongue. Putting off uh, wrath and putting off a, a soft answer. Putting off discontent and putting on contentment. Just some thoughts for today. What are you wearing? Or maybe better said, who are you wearing? Let us be sure that as Christians, we have put on Christ and are representing him well in the world that he so loves. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We've got another hour coming up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.